subscriber questions about the current stock market. It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. For this inaugural episode of Season 2, I invited Kelly Letter subscribers to call with questions. We got a lot of them, and I won't be able to get to all of them today, but I'll get to the others in later episodes. For now, we'll start with Harry from North Carolina. Hello, Jason. This is Harry, longtime reader from North Carolina. Um, I'm calling about uh, an editor that I read uh, in the past couple of weeks who discussed uh, the market in the mid-60s through the early 80s, roughly, and he he uh, called it a market that went, quote, nowhere. Um, and he basically was comparing that market to the market we could be in now or entering into. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, I believe his premise was that because uh, you could earn good returns on bonds in that period of time and things such as certificates of deposit that people shied away from the stock market and Thank you, Harry. That is very much of the moment, so it's timely of you to ask that. This comes up a lot, and you may recall that I've covered it in the Kettle Letter itself, looking at lost decades of the past, because bears frequently refer to a period we're coming into as, as potentially repeating lost decades that we've seen before. It, it has a lot of scare power. To talk about a lost decade or a, a go-nowhere decade really puts the fear in stock investors. So it's a wonderful headline grabber for bears, which is why it comes up again and again. And I'm not commenting on that editor you read. It's possible that was a, a thoughtful, in-depth article that, that wasn't trying to sensationalize its way to the, the top of the heap. I'm just saying that the, the concept of lost decades does come up quite a lot in stock market analysis because it does make for such a compelling bearish headline. However, it's an oversimplification to say that stocks went nowhere in the 1970s or any other so-called lost decade. Even if we take a given index, um, look at where it began and where it ended a time frame, and it's the same level on both of those, it misses that a lot of movement happened in between. And our rebalancing plans take advantage of that movement. The stock market went through deep carnage in 1973 to 1974, within that time frame that the editor you mentioned talked about. In that year, those years, the, the price of oil went up, inflation went up, and long-term bond yields went up. And in the middle of all that, stocks collapsed in a panic. From its peak of... 1,052 on January 11th, 1973, the Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged to 578 by December 6th, 1974, which was a shocking loss of 45%. But then, in this same so-called lost decade, the Dow staged a powerful rally. From the end of 1974 to the end of 1976, so a couple years there, it rose 63%. Keep in mind also that different indexes fare differently. 
So, but, but before I even move on to that, just notice this, the, the go nowhere decade, the seventies is frequently referred to that. And it falls right in the time frame that your editor mentioned that the seventies was a lost decade for the stock market. Well, an awful lot went on between those two identical endpoints, if we can find those, and we can find those on many charts. If, if you look at any kind of fluctuating chart, it's pretty easy to slide back to a past time frame, flag a price, slide forward to a forward time frame, flag a nearby price, and call the entire segment between those two a lost time period. But all of the movement in there is, is useful and, and takes away from this idea of being a lost or a go-nowhere decade especially for plans like ours that react to ups and downs along the way, two identical endpoints don't mean a whole lot. The, the index itself might have, might have been at a certain level at the beginning and a certain level at the end, but with a lot of movement in the middle, and our plans by buying and selling in reaction to that price change can actually grow and grow quite well in periods d during which the index that drives them didn't go anywhere by looking at just the beginning and end point. But let's look to, to the other indexes. That's another thing to keep in mind. When people talk about a lost decade, they're usually talking about blue chip stocks because that's what dominates the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and the S&P 500, which are the most closely followed U.S. stock indexes. But they're not the only stock indexes, and they're not even the ones that we use. So, for instance, while blue chip stocks struggled in the late 1970s, the NASDAQ rose every year from 1975 through 1980. And then in other time frames, such as the dot-com crash, the NASDAQ was completely face-planted while larger general indexes, blue chip general indexes, did fine. So it helps that plans like ours that are in multiple indexes uh, can, can get through these time periods even better because who knows which index the person is talking about when they say it was a go-nowhere decade. From the end of 1974 to the end of 1980, the Dow gained only 56%. But, but by the way, notice that. That's six years of the decade where the Dow was up 56%. That's not really go-nowhere. It's not go-far in, in, in the right direction, but it's not go-nowhere. But anyway, the Dow gained... 56% in those six years from 74 to the end of 80. And the NASDAQ gained 238%, a pretty dramatic difference, more than four times. Turning to the S&P 500 and the mid-60s to the early 80s time frame that you referenced, Harry, we can pull levels that look like it was flat the whole time, as I mentioned earlier. For example, two that I just pulled from, from my chart here, the index was 100 in July 1968 and 100 again in March 1980. And by the way, isn't that funny to think of, of the S&P 500 being at 100? <laughs> How times change, right? But it was. It was 100 in July 1968 and 100 in March 1980. There's your go-nowhere flat market, a lost decade plus. But again, that's not anywhere close to the whole picture. I'm going to pull from that time frame only the big price trends. And within them, look at all the movement in this overall flat time frame. From July 1968 to the end of November 1968, up 8%. From November to, of 1968 to mid-May 1970, down 33%. From mid-May 1970 to January 1973, up 65%. From January 1973 to September 1974, down 
Then, from September 1974 to the end of November 1980, up 127%. Now, of course, there are time segments within such a time frame during which bonds and CDs outperform stocks, but making that call is something you and I will leave to timers. Our plans automate the movement of money between stocks and bonds, so we don't need to worry about whether now is the right moment for one or the other. Price change will guide us. In general, though, the higher interest rates go, the more appealing bonds and CDs become compared with stocks. To understand why, consider an extreme example of a risk-free treasury paying 20% per year. In that case, why would anybody choose stock market risk? Our next question is along similar lines, asked by Mike from Slingerlands, New York. Hi, Jason. This is Mike in Slingerlands, New York. For about 13 years, we've had easy money and markets that grew greatly in excess of the underlying economy and corporate profits. Now the stimulus checks and quantitative easing are gone. Inflation and interest rates are up, and many have lost confidence in U.S. companies, small cap, mid cap, NASDAQ, to churn out new ideas and profits. So my questions are, what time frames in your backtesting of the signal systems does today most remind you of? How long did the downturn and the buy signals last in those similar periods in the past? Was there a long period where markets underperformed the economy and company profits? And how does that give you confidence to continue the systems through this downturn? Thanks. Appreciate your support and guidance all the time. Have a great week. Thank you, Mike. Another good question from right in the moment, which I, I love. I, I want to push back on a few things, though. The first one is this idea that the world has lost confidence in American companies because of this downturn. I disagree with that. I think most business leaders worldwide recognize that there is a business cycle and we're going through a slump right now. But I read quite a bit of commentary that looks at the, the coiled spring idea here, that, that it's been a while since we've had a big breakthrough from tech and it looks like some things are almost ready to go, including some things on the AI front with the November release of of the chat GPT AI system, which is making great strides in, in writing material with just simple voice prompts or simple text prompts to it. And then uh, the, the different technology that I looked at in the note in December to subscribers of, of the different, different technologies that look like they're just about ready to break out. They, they haven't yet, that's true. And, and tech is going through a, a, a period of digestion, it seems like, and some struggles at the moment. But I, I think it's, it's, it's saying too much that the world has lost confidence in American companies. So I want, wanna, I want to push back against that right up front. And something else I want to push back on from your question is this notion that the long rising period of the past was easy. This is mentioned a lot in commentary that the easy money, easy money, and it's usually talked about as if, as if it was obvious in the past that things were going to be good. But bears did not indicate it was easy along the way. They were constantly hampering long-term investors with warnings that came to nothing, then saying later that it was an obviously easy money era that went so well. And not at the time. Not at the time. 
Even Fed policy wasn't easy the whole way. We should not forget the taper tantrum of 2013 when the then supposedly easy quantitative easing since the subprime mortgage crash was going to dry up and take markets down. And even that supposedly easy quantitative easing was not called easy at the time. They were, they were saying the whole time, oh my gosh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to blow up the U.S. balance sheet. It's going to inflate the banking system. We're going to have a bigger crash than the subprime mortgage crash itself caused by the rescue from the subprime mortgage crash and so on. So, you know, the idea that things were easy is, is, is unfair looking back. It's, it's a classic case of, of, of hindsight bias that we can, we can look back now and say it looked so easy. Um, it certainly didn't look that way at the time. And in the end, for example, that taper tantrum of 2013 panic was unjustified. The market continued to recover after the tapering program began. Many people misunderstand this. They think the tapering, the, the taper tantrum panic was unjustified because there never was a taper, that the Fed didn't do anything. That's not true. The tapering program did begin. It was just gentle and didn't cause any damage, which bears said it would cause. The S&P 500 rose 130% from the beginning of 2013 to its pre-COVID peak in February 2020. And that was not because there was any giant green light and all of the markets analysts saying things look good from here. You know, the, the, the stock market's rising in line with corporate profits. Uh, corporations are solid. Banks are honest again. Everything's looking good. That was not the case. There were doubts absolutely everywhere. Every little Every little hiccup in the averages was called the beginning of the next big one. And the, the, the post-traumatic stress disorder of the collapse of 2008 rode very prominently in media during that time. So for, for uh, you, Mike, and everybody else listening to this, I, I think we should all reset our, our look back at, at this characterization of things having been easy money in the past, that it was so such a glide path higher for us all that time, but now we've truly run into a brick wall and it's going to get rough from here. Nope, I don't see anything that looks any rougher from here than what it looked like in the past because the past was nothing at all easy. Now, with the Fed funds rate expected to peak a little north of 5%, we are indeed into a tighter monetary phase, as you indicated, Mike, but not into historically damaging territory for the stock market. For example, the stock market did fine through a 5% plus Fed funds rate in the late 1990s, during which period the S&P 500 more than tripled. And then from May 2006 through July 2007, when the S&P 500 rose about 15%. So up front, up front then, I want to dispel the characterization of a past positive time frame having been easy or more clear and disagree with the characterization that our current policy environment is unusually difficult for stocks. Neither of those is accurate in my view. As for what past time frame most reminds me of this one, the trajectory of the Fed funds rate is similar to what we saw in the mid-90s when it went from 3% in January 1994 to 6% in April 1995. Then sideways mostly in the 5 to 6% zone for the rest of the decade. Now stocks did spectacularly well in that period before the dot-com crash. 
I don't see that being so similar. Stock, uh, tech stocks are not doing well right now, for example. But, but nonetheless, as, as far as the Fed funds rate goes, there's a similar time frame. Let's look at another one. There was a quick spike in the Fed funds rate, just as we saw last year, back in the late 1970s when it went from 5% in April 1977 to, <laughs> ready for this, Nearly 20% in June 1981. That was a rough period for blue chip stocks, as I discussed earlier, but not for all stocks. And even within the general roughness, there were periods of rising. The most recent prolonged period of decline was the subprime mortgage crash, when the, sub, when the S&P 500 rather, fell 56% from October 2007 to March 2009. Five of those six quarters would have generated a buy signal in most of our plans, not all, but even nine sig would have fared all right through this. Here are the six quarterly returns of the NASDAQ 100 in round numbers from that time frame. NDX in round numbers, Q407 down 9%, Q108 down 5%, Q208 down 3%. Q308 down 19%, Q408 down 14%, Q109 up 4%. This period was preceded by five quarters of sell signals, so our 9SIG plan would have had plenty of cash stored up, and it doesn't have any mechanism to rebalance if cash gets too high. It lets that store up, so we would have benefited from that. It would have used most of it in the first three quarters of the five-quarter decline, then limped through the big crash at the end of 2008 before recovery began in the first quarter of 2009. Not good, no doubt. The time frame was particularly ill-suited to this plan, which would have fared better if the crash had been front-loaded instead of back-loaded. However, even in this unfortunate circumstance, the NDX fully, that's the NASDAQ 100, fully recovered by the end of 2010, seven quarters later, not too quick, and again, not a, not a great situation, and a 3x leverage fund like the type we use would have tripled from the bottom by then, taking it back to half its former price peak and nearly back to full balance recovery in a plan that adds more money on the way down as our 9SIG plan does. This is a little too detailed to do justice by audio only, so I'll have to explore it in more depth in an upcoming letter. For now, though, a comforting takeaway is that even in the worst crash of recent times, our most leveraged plan came through relatively well. This gives me confidence that it can handle other biggies and certainly the not-so-big issue we're dealing with now. Our next question, John McDonald from San Francisco expressed concerns related to mics. This is John McDonald calling from San Francisco, California. I'm just beginning to wonder how confident you are that your signal strategies are, are still solid. We've had zero interest rates since about 2000 and a lot of quantitative easing since 2008. All of that's pumped up the market, and now we're going to have higher interest rates and apparently little, if any, quantitative easing. Uh, does that change any of your rules? Thank you, John. An understandable question after a whole year of declining, buy signal after buy signal. This is on a lot of people's minds. 
One strength of our plans is that they reduce everything to price change. Ultimately, the higher, but not historically dangerous, interest rates and historically normal lack of QE, though not in the years after subprime, situation we find ourselves in now will get turned into price change. And that, that was sort of a lot to pack into one sentence, I guess. But what I'm talking about is, yes, interest rates are higher now, but they're not historically dangerous. And yes, QE is, is gone now, but throughout most of market history, it's been gone. And throughout most of market history, the stock market has risen two-thirds of the time. So we, we have to be careful to not succumb to a general media narrative that we are entering the most dangerous phase we've ever been in. And part of that does include what you alluded to, that the market has been pumped up by Federal Reserve policy since the subprime mortgage crash. But prior to subprime, it was you know, supposedly pumped up because of the reaction to, to the dot-com crash. And before the dot-com crash, it was, it was supposedly pumped up because of the, the dot-com mania itself, which the Fed was fighting uh, tooth and nail to squash. And it kept going for a, a good two years beyond when everybody said it couldn't possibly keep going. What this comes down to, in my view, with a, a top-level look at market history, is that whenever the market's done well for a while, and, and then it starts going down, it's always referred to as the previous rising period was, was one of two things. It was either easy, well, what we talked about earlier, what I talked about earlier in this episode, it was easy money because of what the Federal Reserve was doing or for some other reason. Easy money because of the, the dot-com stocks. Easy money because of the reaction to the dot-com crash. Easy money because of the, the recovery from the face plant of subprime. I, what, what's, what's easy about it and, and what's pumped up about the market? The market goes up and it goes down. It's risen two-thirds of the time. That means there are going to be many periods where it's gone up a lot and then comes down a little, then goes up a lot again and comes down a little. It's done that for well on a century now. And, and I, don't, I don't really think it's, it's fair to, to call every rise a, a pumped up or fake reason for having risen. And, and and it's another reason I think valuation stopped working in the last, uh, well, so far this century, really, um, because people started caring about different things in the stock market. They cared about earnings growth. They, they cared about, they did care about monetary policy. And they, they, they cared about the, the lack of interest rates. That's true. And now we do have interest rates coming back. But throughout most history, we had interest rates above zero and stocks still did well. So ultimately, like I said, it comes down to, to price change, really. And our rules are set to react to the price change that results from whatever conditions we get, rebalancing between stocks and bonds. And I don't see a reason why that would not keep working now the same way it has worked in the past. I actually think the, the 1970s were trickier for stocks than it is now. I mean, the, and, and thank goodness we had a, well, in retrospect, we'll see how we feel about this Fed later. But it looks to me right now that the Federal Reserve of the late 70s and early 80s was, was quite a bit more competent than our current Federal Reserve. I don't know why that would be. And maybe we're going to look back later when things turned out fine this time and say, well, you know, they, they got the the transitory inflation thing wrong, and then they panicked a little bit too much after that, but they kind of righted the ship and it worked out okay. So maybe it'll look fine later because there were plenty of people in the 1980s that were saying the Federal Reserve was a big part of the problem and sending death threats to headquarters and all kinds of nuttiness as, as interest rates went through the roof. 
So I don't know for sure that we're going to look back and think that this is the worst Fed ever, as many analysts say now, or one of the worst Feds. I'm not quite sure about that. But it does look like the Fed of the late 70s and early 80s was was a lot better than the current one. And the stocks got through that as well. And eventually we got into the 80s. That was a good market. The 90s were a good market. The 10s were pretty good. I mean, we, you know, decade after decade, stocks have done well. And that up two-thirds of the time, down one-third of the time, overall pattern holds. And that's why I think our rules will continue working. One part of our overall portfolio that I'm researching is the desirability of a cross-plan rebalancing mechanism in which imbalances resulting from one of the plans running wildly in one direction or the other could offer us a chance to benefit by moving money from one relatively high-priced plan to relatively lower-priced ones by rebalancing the whole group. If we have technology going going very powerfully for a while, as we did prior to prior to the the COVID crash, and then and then after the COVID crash, when it did even better, as everybody was locked home using technology, if you have a situation like that where it pumps up one of our plans, like Nine Sig was pumped up, and at the same time the other indexes we use have not been doing as well, then that could provide a nice opportunity to rebalance among the plans so that money comes away from the very high priced technology index over into the lower price smaller cap index for example and this this could this could work well and it seems obvious right like of course we should have done that but the results are actually mixed over a very long timeline within a bear market like this one it's tempting to curve fit back to something that would have taken most profits off the table at the past peak but then it might not do as well in the next cycle I'm going for an evergreen portfolio here, so I want to be sure that cross-plan rebalancing is best in most situations before implementing it. I don't want to be reactive to whatever current market cycle we're going through. I want to make sure that we're seeing the bigger picture and that whatever changes we make to our plans, they, they really should improve performance in most situations going forward. As far as the rules within the plans, though, I, I really don't see anything that needs changing based on the move from accommodative Fed policy to restrictive. That'll do it for today. I'll continue this Q&A next week with questions from Neil in Central Illinois, Nick in Denver, Doug in Canada, Michelle in Massachusetts, and a comment from Kent in Connecticut. Subscribers may call the number I emailed to leave a voicemail message with a question. This is a benefit of subscribing to the letter. Thank you for listening. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. Please subscribe to the podcast from any of the links at jasonkelly.com to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. And did you remember that I write an investing newsletter every Sunday? This is a great time to join the Kelly Letter. Prices are still low, but the market has been rising at the start of 2023. Please become a Kelly Letter member today at jasonkelly.com to start your own market-beating SIG plans in the long term. And you'll get that phone number to call and leave a question for a future episode like this one. Current subscribers, thank you for doing business with me. I'll see you Sunday.